It was over 40 years ago when a local church uh, in the area uh, invited me to teach a Bible study at, to the congregation, or at least to those interested in a Bible study. Uh, I was a little bit uh, taken back. I certainly felt awkward. You don't go into someone else's church and teach. So I met with the pastor, and I said that uh, I know that one of your parishioners has kind of lobbied, I guess I can use that word, for me to be a teacher here in terms of a Bible study, but I'm very, uh, that was not for me, and I'm not uh, putting myself forward as such, and I just gave really all kinds of disclaimers. I wanted to be honest with him, and I, I understood how church life works, and I certainly understood how pastoral ministry works, and again, uh, I felt I owed him to at least know that this didn't come from me. Uh, but he turned the whole thing around. It was very interesting as I listened to him. He said, oh, no, 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 I'm for that. Oh, no, 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 I'm not a teacher. And he kept disclaiming, in a sense, himself and saying, no, I really would like someone here who is, uh, a, you know, is very much focused on Bible teaching, and I'd like that church, my papers to go. I didn't know what to really think of it. I didn't know if he was being courteous. Uh, I didn't know just exactly what he meant, but we did have a, a quite a long talk. We we went on, and I, he finally convinced me that yes, that's what he wants. I said, well, if you understand that I'm coming on that basis, and I like to teach, and I certainly, uh, uh, you know, I'm not bringing a denominational aspect to this or some niche. I said I teach the Bible. Uh, this is that's what I want. And so uh, that happened for, I, I went and I go on Thursday nights and teach at that church, uh, uh, my regular Bible study. And it went on for a number of years, but the subject never changed because what I decided to do, since I had a lot of understanding now, at least a lot of explanation as to why uh, this particular pastor and uh, the man who went to that church, who had a, yeah, a significant role to play in the life of the church, wanted the Bible taught. And uh, I thought it all through, and I thought, uh, why don't I do what Jesus did? That might not be a bad idea. <laughs> if you want uh, to know the Bible teaching, and uh, you want to get it, shall we say, in a colloquial terms, from the horse's mouth, maybe you should think again about how Jesus taught the Bible and taught how in the Bible it's, it's, it's his story. And one of the places, and there's many, but one of the places where it comes right to the forefront is on the night Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, two of his disciples, not the apostles, but two of the disciples, Clophus and his wife, uh, were heading back home to, uh, to their town. They were despondent, to say the least. They had waited, they had believed, they had hoped that Jesus would, in fact, rise from the dead. Uh, but they didn't see him, at least in his risen form. Oh, they'd heard rumors, the women had come back and said something about the tomb being empty. But they didn't take that completely to heart. And they were really discouraged. They were discouraged on their way back uh, to uh, th their home. It was Emmaus, the road to Emmaus. And uh, suddenly, unbeknownst to them, or at least unrecognized by them, Jesus comes up alongside of them and walks with them. 
And he probes them with a question. Why, why are you so despondent? What is this all about? And they turn and say, where have you been all weekend? Uh, and they thought, by now, everybody, whether they were quote-unquote believers in Jesus or just uh, uh, people who lived in Jerusalem knew the crisis that had happened when the governor of the colony had accused or taken the accusations brought against this, uh, this young rabbi, this young teacher, this 30-plus-year-old uh, teacher of the, of the Bible, and uh, put him on a cross crucified him and it was it was known through the whole territory and so they say to this Jesus they don't recognize for who he is yet and they say to him where have you been uh, have you been in a, you know well, my words not the Bibles but uh, have, have you had your head in the sand uh, don't you know what this has been all about and uh, Jesus begins to tell them about himself, but he doesn't do it directly like pointing to himself or uh, revealing his identity as such. What he does is he starts, it says, with Moses. And he went through the Bible as they walked together, book by book by book by book. Now, they didn't have a New Testament yet, of course. But they went through the 39 books, I guess, of the Old Testament. And as Jesus walked, he showed where he was in every book of the Bible. He showed how he was being revealed in Genesis when Abel shed blood and uh, his brother did not. And it was the shedding of blood, just as we heard a moment ago when we, when we celebrated the Passover. The shed, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And went on into the Exodus and showed how the uh, God of the, of the Israelites had saved them by his grace and brought them out and across the Red Sea and went on through all the books. Of, the way it's written, I take it myself, that he must have just given a, a very brief insight into each book, but he shows that the whole Bible was written about him. The whole Bible was written about him. And, and in fact, after he, they do recognize him. And by the way, again, if you read that 24th chapter of Luke, they, they recognize him at dinner when he breaks the bread and he, and he gives thanks. Then they their eyes are opened and they recognize his actions. They recognize his way and they realize they are actually having dinner with the risen Christ. And as soon as they understand, as soon as they get it, that he disappears. I said, well, maybe wisdom would be for me to teach a Bible study at that church uh, that stuck to the Bible, again, not religious or not church issues, but stick to the Bible and go each week to one of the books of the Bible and show how that book brings Christ to light, how he's there as the subject one way or another in every book of the Bible. Uh, and so as I think about uh, how Jesus must, I don't know, they, I, I did it over a week, so I wasn't walking with them an hour or two and giving them all of that. I had two or three years. But Jesus kind of must have put it into a nutshell. And I suspect that that's what he was doing for his disciples, the last speech he made to them. Uh, there was a professor out here at Chicago University, Alan Bloom. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or his book, but he wrote a book back in 1987 
And in that book, he, uh, he uh, basically warned that there was something happening in the American university and college fields that was threatening the American way. He named his book, The Closing of the American Mind. It was a popular book at the time. But he made a statement in there that caught my attention and I never forgot it. And he, talked, he said, any real teacher, any real teacher uh, uh, understands that, uh, that uh, his students have a soul. And words have a certain magical effect on the soul. I said, words have a magical effect. I, for my own purposes, boil that down uh, to this. Words work magic on the soul. And, and they do. After all, God spoke the world into existence. His Son is the Word of God incarnate. Uh, the longest book of the Bible, or at least the longest chapter in the Bible, is the 119th Psalm. And it's all about the Word of God. 178 verses, uh, or, or 179, I think on the Word of God. So the Word of God is very powerful. It's a sharp, it's a two-edged sword. It cuts to the heart of things. And uh, when it's proclaimed, God takes that for, to himself and he performs those words. He performs them, he performs them. So this is the new year. And this, uh, we are one of the churches in the world. And nothing's new under the sun, ultimately, the Bible tells us that. But we can renew our, our life in Christ. We can renew ourselves and should periodically really go back and think again, who are we and what are we all about? And what is the Church of Christ meant to do? What's, what actions do we take? Uh, is it just following the world's agenda and doing things that are good in themselves uh, and uh, ought to be done actually by people who love people, uh, feed the poor and care for the sick, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's something deeper and something more focused on the life of the church and in a real sense, only for the church to do. And uh, and then talking about how Jesus must have had that capacity, that, that way of bringing things down to their essence. He must have done that, I say, on the road to Damascus to get all the way through the books of Moses and on the rest of the New Testament or the Old Testament and teach about himself. Well, I want to look at a passage with you this morning. You have it already typed out. And I will read from the one you have as an insert in the bulletin so we're all hearing the same translation. But in this passage, uh, Christ just brings it all down to a point. He brings down the purpose of the church, our purpose as Christians, our reason for being in the world or being left in the world. Uh, it's, it's here and I think it's here, oh, it's other places, but it's here in, in these verses, John 16, beginning at verse four and reading on through the 11th verse. So let's listen to it together. But I have said these things to you. Now, this is Jesus. Uh, I said that that little statement by Bloom in his preface, you know, that no good, there's no good teacher that doesn't understand that uh, his students have souls and that words work magic on the soul. Uh, let's, let's not forget this when Jesus gets into these, these words. Uh, because he's bringing it down to three words 
what we are supposed to be doing, ultimately, at root, at base. The, the, the call of the Christian church is here in three words, powerful words. Now, let's listen to them in context. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. Three words, sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's really what he's saying. He said, that's the focus of the, of the message and the methodology of the church for reaching the world for him. The, the, these three words are at the heart and soul of our evangelistic task. Everyone called to Christ, you don't have to have great masses and be a Billy Graham, but everyone called to Christ is an evangelist. Evangelical or evangel is simply uh, speaking about the good news. It's the good news. And we are all commissioned to bring forward the good news. And the good news involves sin and righteousness and judgment. So I'd like to look at that with you this morning just for a few minutes and think about the implications of that short sentence and, and in that short paragraph really that I read uh, of the fact that we are called, we are commissioned. That's what disciples do. They carry forward the ministry and mission of their master. Christ is our master. And he came into the world in order to deal with sin and righteousness and judgment. So let's think about that. Let's, let's look at that for a few moments uh, this morning. <clears throat> When Jesus said, uh, I have come into the world, or he said basically, uh, uh, you are responsible to convict the world of sin, he was not talking about their abilities as human beings at all. He was not saying, you've got the point now, I've taught you well, you have it in yourself to do this. No, they did not have it in themselves to do it any more than we do. We, we, are, we are not equipped to transform the world. We are not equipped, I mean of ourselves and in ourselves, in and of ourselves, uh, to do that. That is the work of God. Only God can bring this about. And if you read the entire section here, by the way, this is a part of a speech. If you go back and look at John and go start at, at chapter 14 and go on to the end of chapter 16, a long, long passage, 14, 15, 16. And if you want, even continue on into 17. That's the prayer that Jesus offers after he teaches these things. He prays to God that the disciples will get it. But that's a long speech. That's a long speech. 
But I say that the essence of what he has to say, he wraps up in those three words, to, to proclaim or at least to testify in the world or convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin. Then he explains what sin is. Now, sin is, on a general scheme of things, anything that offends God or anything that violates his revealed will. Uh, anything that we do that the Bible says don't do, don't be, and we are that way or act that way or think that way, that's sin. But notice that Jesus doesn't leave sin in the abstract, that's for sure, and he doesn't just generalize. He says that, he, that we are to convict the world of sin and then he names the sin that we have to convict the world of is the sin of not believing in him. Notice I read that? Let me read that again. That's very important. We really need to think about that. He said, if, but if I go, Jesus, you know, is going to be crucified the next morning. He will rise from the dead and eventually he will ascend to the Father. But if I go... I will send him to you. That's the Holy Spirit. He's the one that does this. The Holy Spirit is the one that does that. He does it through us. He does it through our testimony. He does it through our behavior. He does it in and through us, but he is the one who accomplishes it. And, and if you read that whole speech, you can't miss the fact that Jesus keeps saying, oh, I'm going to go, but I will send the helper. I will send the helper to you. I will send the, uh, the uh, Holy Spirit to you. I am the Father of one. You are in me, and I am in you, and I am in the Father. And the Father. He keeps building this relationship up of, of how we relate uh, in Christ to his Father, to himself, to each other. Uh, he, he spends uh, that long teaching, that long speech, making that clear. But he's coming down to, as I say, a point here. But if I go, I'll send him to you, and meaning the Holy Spirit. And he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then he explains, of sin, why? Again, misdeeds and all that, well, it's sin, but that's not his point. He says, of sin, because they do not believe in me. That is sobering in our day and age. Because we are being challenged, if you aren't, I am, that if I claim that Christ is the only hope, the only answer, the only way, then I'm looked upon as narrow, bigoted, hateful, uh, I don't have a generous spirit, I don't have real love for people. All these accusations come simply by saying that there is no other savior. Jesus, by the way, already spoke about this early on in this very speech. When he gave uh, this speech, he began, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's chapter 14, verse one, and, uh, and follow it out. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. There's room for you. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I'll receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then he says, you know the way. And Thomas, who's the doubter and always seems to blurt out the, the necessary question. They said, no, we don't know the way. How can we know the way? Jesus looks at Thomas, he says, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's where that awful claim comes from. It comes from the lips of Jesus. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so the sin of the world is not believing in Jesus Christ. So everyone in the world who is not believing in Jesus Christ is sinning against God. That's just our Savior's fact shown to us. And churches can fall into that trap, trying to somehow conciliate with the world around us. Miriam and I went to the funeral of a gentleman uh, who was in a local church nearby. And uh, during the funeral, the pastor read John 14. It's a, it's a passage that's often read at a funeral service. It gives some comfort. It gives some hope. It, uh, it begins to explain that there's more to life than this life. Uh, uh, and I, say, I just quoted to you, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house is room for you. But if, I, if it wasn't, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I will receive you to myself that you can be with me. Where I am, there you can be also. And, he, he, and then he gets down to that question of Thomas. Wait, wait a minute. Now you say the way, the way to go is you. Uh, uh, show us the way. We don't know the way. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And then he didn't leave it there. He says, no one comes to the Father but by me. So that was Jesus' claim. And not to believe he's the way of the Father is a sin against God. So a church has to keep on keeping on with that claim. It can't back away from that. It can't do what that pastor did in the pulpit. Because when that pastor came to verse 6, which is, the way, the truth, and the life. He went right around it. He read, and if a person didn't know their Bible or wasn't looking at it and did know, they might not notice that he went right down to five and on to seven. He skipped that. And that's the whole point. For Jesus, you are in the world to convict people that they don't believe in me because I want them to come to me that I might redeem them. I might receive them. I might, I might transform them. I might make them my own. I might give them to my Father that I might do all these wonderful things. You've got to convict them of sin or they won't come. As long as they think they're okay the way they are, they're not going to come to me. They've got to know what they're doing by not coming. They've got to know what they're doing by not believing. And that's the first thing Jesus says in this discourse and in this particular verse. Then he says, and righteousness. And, and he explains that. He says, convict them of sin. You've got to convict them of righteousness. What does he really mean? Convict them of righteousness. I don't think this is an easy one to get at, and I'm not going to stick my feet in cement on it right now. But I'm going to give you what I think it means. Uh, I mentioned in the first service that uh, there's one man that I followed like a hawk. I, I was a student assistant. He was a brilliant guy when he was young, and he got more brilliant as he went on. And many of you know his name probably, Asti Sproul. Uh, Asti Sproul and I play golf over here at New Meadows quite often. And in fact, in my later years, whenever I talked to him, I saw him, he said, hey, you're still hitting those long, high forehands. <laughs> it was our relationship at that level, I guess, that was more important to him. But at my level, it was his teaching. He was right on track. He was a good teacher. I went and got his book on this passage. 
And he said, I am not sure what this passage means. So that was a little discouraging. I thought he would tell me, but he didn't know. Well, I'm not sure I know exactly, but let me try this out and we'll see what you think. Righteousness, because he says, I'm going to my father. Now, and you'll see me no more. Now that isn't, on the surface at least, very helpful. I don't think. Just I'm going away. I'm getting lost. You, it's up to you guys. You, you go out there and preach the word. Uh, uh, righteousness. Well, one thing he can't mean, because then it would throw the Bible into a conundrum, and he can't mean the law of Moses. He can't mean keep the law of Moses and keep it perfectly, and you'll be all right with God. You'll be righteous. He can't mean that. No, he can't mean it because he, John began his gospel saying the law came by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He contrasts them. He contrasts keeping the law with trusting Christ. And he says, nobody can keep the law until you're transformed, until God has done this work of transformation and deliverance and all. No, he can't mean that because it wouldn't make sense in the things he said. So what's he talking about? Let me suggest that Paul may give us the answer in the, in the book of Romans. And in particularly the fourth chapter, and at the very end, the last two verses of that chapter, you're going to look it up later, I'll tell you what they are. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is reminding the Romans of what they have come to believe in the gospel, because they already are Christians, and they already have a church, and Paul's writing a letter to them, and Paul's motive is to say that I want to go to Spain with the gospel. I, they haven't heard the gospel yet in Spain. I want to take the gospel to Spain, and I want you guys to support me on my missionary journey. I want you to help me out. I, I don't have resources of my own to get to Spain and do the work. I need your help. At, I want the Church of Rome to help me. But the Church of Rome, like the Church of Byfield, is not going to help people in their mission if it's not our mission. We, we check on missionaries we, serve, uh, we support. We want to know they're preaching the gospel. We want to know that we're not giving our resources to someone who's denying the gospel. So we interview them and we check them out. And then if they're worthy of support in the sense of they have the gospel message, we will consider supporting them. That was true in the ancient world. Paul writes a letter to the Romans to tell them what he preaches when he goes forth with the gospel. So he spells the gospel out in wonderful ways. And when he comes to chapter 4, what he is doing is he's summarizing a very important part of that gospel, where he has already said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there's none righteous, no, not one, but God, but God, he's done something about it in Christ, etc. And then he, he talks about faith, and how faith is the key to righteousness. The passage he quotes, Paul quotes it out of Genesis, uh, written 2,000 years before Paul. It says in Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was reckoned. Didn't make him righteous. Didn't, the, 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 his belief did not immediately transform him, so he lived a perfect life after that. But God reckoned. He, he took Abraham's name off the side of the ledger that said sinner and put it on the side of the ledger that said righteous. That's what our salvation really is. God moves us from one side of the ledger to the other. And he doesn't treat us according to who we are at the moment until we're back from the dead and we've been transformed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, if we're alive, then we'll be transformed. 
And if we've died, he'll bring us from the grave and he'll transform us. But nobody in this room, I'll, at least I'll speak for myself, is yet transformed. I, I am still under the orders that John gave. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive it. I don't think I'd have that command if I didn't sin. I don't mean to, and I don't say it's a plan or a, a purpose of mine, but it's a reality. But that doesn't change my relationship to God, because what God did is he took my faith in Christ, and he used, he, would, he had already solved my sin problem on the cross. He had swapped me for Christ on the cross. Christ died, abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I forsook you because you swapped yourself with Bill Boylan. And he's a God-forsaken man because he's a sinner. And I crucified him in you. And now I took you, who are a righteous man, and I gave him that status as a gift. As a gift. I think that's what this verse is driving at. I think this verse is driving at this profound reality that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that God accepted himself on my behalf. If he had not, if, if he had gone to the grave in my sin and God had said, no, I want his, I want him to pay his own sin. But it's now on Christ because he took it. He would not have risen from the dead. He's, he'd have decayed in his grave and he'd be long gone. If he stayed, if he had taken my sin and God had not said, I abolish it. I accept your, 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 your offer. I accept your substitution. I accept you in his stead. So once I am cleansed, Christ is free to rise. Because he no longer has my sin that's been forgiven. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, you see, it says, and righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. I have come out of the grave. I am going back to the sender. And my resurrection is your proof that God accepted my sacrifice on your behalf. And Paul puts it like this at the end of Romans. He was put to death for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. Now there's a better translation than that. It's in the New King James Version. And you, the little verb, I mean the little particle, dia is a Greek word, but it can mean for, and it can mean because of. It's a causal word. It can say, he was put to death for our sins and raised again for our justification. But that wouldn't square with the gospel. Because it wasn't his resurrection that saved us, it was his crucifixion. Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? Not him resurrected. So what Paul is really saying is, he is really saying that uh, he was put to death because of our sin. My sin is the cause of his crucifixion. And his acceptance with God is the cause uh, and my acceptance with God is the cause of his resurrection. He was raised because his, his sacrifice was acceptable to God. And so Paul is saying in his letter, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and believe it, if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's exactly the point. 
That's exactly it. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a proof that God accepted his sacrifice for our sins and which to tell the world that. That's what this, the resurrection is profound. It's the beginning of a whole new created order. And then finally, he says, and judgment, why? Because the prince of this world is cast out as judge. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the rapture theory. Because it takes a passage that is profoundly insightful and it almost trivializes it in Revelation 20 about the binding of Satan. You probably run across that somewhere or other. An angel comes out of heaven with a great chain. He binds evil when he casts him into the abyss for a thousand years. It's not about some future thing. It's about what Christ did to Satan on the cross. That's what it's about. And Jesus says so. I mean, you don't have to guess at that. Jesus is telling his disciples how he has authority to, to release people from demonic possession, from the devil. And he says, well, let me give you an example, Jesus says. It's like a strong man who has a house full of treasures, and somebody wants to rob him. He says, well, he can't rob the strong man until he binds him. Until he binds the strong man, he can't get at his goods or take his money or anything. And Jesus isn't talking about money and goods and men. He's talking about what he did on the cross. He bound Satan for a purpose. Not for all purposes. Not like he can't run amok in the world or anything like that. But for one purpose. That the message of Jesus Christ cannot be blocked and unheard by people for whom Christ died. And that is exactly what Revelation 20 says. If you read it for yourself, just the first three verses. I saw a great angel come out of heaven, and he bound the dragon, the evil one, and he cast him into the abyss, and he kept him there for a thousand years, that he might deceive the nations no more. He lost his power to deceive. And so that's why the gospel has gone into all the world, and people from every tribe and tongue and nation now believe it, because it can't be stopped. So that's our challenge as a local church as well as the church. We are to glorify Jesus Christ. We are to proclaim him. We are to convict the world of sin that it might be forgiven, of righteousness that God's gift of life is a gift of grace and of judgment because when we go forth with that message there's nothing in heaven or hell that can stop it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word, to give it thought, to uh, not only just reflect on it, but to realize what a great treasure it is that we have received as, as the life of Christ himself in us through the Holy Spirit. So we give you thanks and we praise you. And we thank you again in Christ's name.